morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in Psalm 25. Psalm 25. This summer, we've been doing our annual trail tradition of going through the Psalms, and I love it. It's wonderful. Uh, we spent time with Boswell looking at the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23 and how he cares for us. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 24 with Jim Bridges and looked at the King of Glory. And today, where we were in a pasture and we're on a holy hill, now we're descending into the valley of hardship. As we look at Psalm 25, it's a lot like in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read that book, where Christian goes to the Palace Beautiful, to the church, and he's ministered to and comforted there right before he begins to descend into the valley of fear and hardship against the enemy. It's very similar. We've spent time the last couple of weeks learning and understanding that God cares for his people, and now we get to put those into practice as we look at how David puts those into practice in the midst of trouble. Charles Spurgeon has said that in this psalm, we see the very heart of the man who is after God's own heart. So what do you expect to see today? As we look at the spiritual anatomy of David's heart, a man who wanted to worship God, what do you think we'll find? My hope is that as we look at this, we're going to see two themes emerge, worship and trust. And I think these are two themes that should mark the whole Christian experience, and we're going to see them weaved all through. Today's psalm is an acrostic poem meaning it doesn't follow really a linear pattern, but rather what David does, it's a work of art where he's taking each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and beginning each line with a different letter. And so because of that, again, it doesn't follow a linear approach, but rather what you're going to find is these rhythms of praying and meditating and praying and meditating. What I want us to do is to look at how David is processing his life in the midst of hardship with prayer and reflection on God's goodness, and then prayer and meditation on God's goodness so that we can learn to do the same. Because all of us are going through troubles. They're multifaceted, but the Lord knows. So I want us to learn from David, the man after God's own heart, so that we can follow in his way. And so what we're going to do is look how David prays and let that teach us how to pray. And specifically, we're going to identify five simple short prayers. I want to give a short, simple language so these words can be on your lips, so that the theme of these Prayers that we're going to find David praying echo out of our own hearts in times of trouble. And then we're going to look at one beautiful, redemptive reality that we find in Psalm 25 that really is the fuel of all of our worship and trust, no matter what trouble we're going through. And so I want us to come to God's word and learn now. And what we're going to read due to the length of today's text is just a few verses these are the verses that describe the condition David's in. You're going to see some, some words of, of uh, concern and hardship. And I just want to remind us, if there's any part of your heart that can echo these words, you're in good company, and you're in a safe place. The church of Jesus Christ is the place where broken and needy men and women can come to find the grace and mercy of a God who loves his people. And so that's what I hope we'll see. So if you are able, I would love to invite you to stand to your feet and stand in your hearts as we read God's word. This is God's holy and perfect word for us today. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us receive it with joy and believe. He never lies. Instead, he is speaking to us as we read. You may please be seated. So I want us to again look at what, what does David teach us? 
How is he modeling for us how to pray here? And I want us to look at five simple prayers. Again, I've rewritten these so that they're simple enough for you to hopefully put in your back pocket and go as you go throughout the day. And that as you are experiencing trouble and, and your soul begins to shake from the earthquake of suffering and frustration, whatever you're, it is you're going through, that out comes prayer that echoes from this model. And the first prayer we're going to see is, Lord, keep me. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. would invite you to look in your Bibles with me in those verses. It says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. This is an expression of worship. This phrase, lift up my soul, in other parts of the Hebrew Bible refers to setting your heart on or desiring something. Uh, and, and what we're getting at is David is in essence saying, Lord, in the midst of this trouble, I don't want anything else. I'm not going anywhere else. You're the one I want. This is the perfect way to start a prayer in the midst of pain. It's to say, Lord, I know there's plenty of ways that I could try to deal with this problem, my own strength. I can go to the ways of the world. I could try to just suck it up. But Lord, instead, I'm coming to you. I desire you. But verse 2 says, oh my God, in you I trust. We see worship and trust off the bat. It says, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So what we're seeing is, again, David is asking God to help him, and he's expressing a posture of worship and trust. Specifically, the shame that's being referred to here is related to foolishness. Imagine how vulnerable it is to fully entrust yourself to someone. You don't want to be taken advantage of. You don't want to be let down. And that's, in essence, what David is saying. He knows that God is going to keep him, but for the sake of his own experience and for the good of God's glory, he does not want his enemies to look at David's faith and call him a fool. Because, you see, if you put in some, your trust in something that can't hold you and people see you do that, they will mock you. They'll say, you're a fool. You're crazy. So David is saying, let me not be put to shame. Don't let my enemies boast or gloat over me. Keep me in the way. We're going to see this theme pop up again later in verse 20 when David says, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Again, David, it's as if he's saying, God, I'm taking refuge in you in the midst of the storm. Please don't let the storm take me away. He's asking the Lord to keep him. And so what is David teaching us about worship and trust? Well, let's look at verse 3. Notice how he says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. So do you notice it goes first from prayer. God, I trust in you. God, I desire you. And now this meditation. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. That's a big word. But what that's referring to is just someone who doesn't care and with no reason and no regard for anything just goes and sins on their own. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to desire God. They just want to do their own thing. And David's meditating and saying, I'm asking you to keep me. And then he reflects and says, I know you're going to keep me because here are the people who you prove foolish, those who reject you completely. But to anyone who comes and waits on you, they'll never be put to shame. David is meditating on truth in order to fuel his prayer. And so what does he teach us? Well, it simply teaches us that if we're in trouble, we should go to the God who will keep us. Whatever trouble we're going through, we should go to the God who says, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. I'm not going to make you look like a fool. I will not let you be put to shame. So I want us to think specifically how this prayer of, Lord, keep me, can help us in the trouble of temptation. Specifically, a persistent battle with temptation. Maybe there's a temptation in your life that you wish would die, but it's just taking a really long time, and you're growing frustrated. You're growing disgruntled. 
You're tired of the suffering of experiencing this, and that's a real suffering. You wish your heart would be more oriented to God and you're fighting daily, but you're just, you just want rest from it. How might we pray, Lord, keep me? Well, simply put, we see that if we keep coming to God, he will keep us from falling into shame. That's what this leads us to see, that if we meditate on the reality that none who wait on the Lord will be put to shame, then it fuels us to keep coming to him. And so what would this look like practically? Well, it helps us to understand often in the midst of temptation, Satan is just trying to assault your view of the goodness of God. This is what he's been doing all along. He's a liar through and through, but this is his tactic. He seeks to destroy your view of the goodness of God. This is what we see in Genesis 3, and it continues all the way through. He wants to get into your heads and make you think that God is not for you and that God does not want to help you, so what you should do is just take it into your own hands because you're left alone. You're acting like an orphan, an orphan mentality. There's no one there to take care of you, so therefore, you must do it. He tries to make sin look more beautiful than God and make God look against us and not for us and harsh. Here's how Puritan Thomas Brooks said it. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the pleasure and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. And if he can get you to take the bait, whatever it looks like, he doesn't care. He's multifaceted. He just wants to destroy your soul. So what he'll do is he'll give you the bait, hide the hook, but the second you take of it, he will glow over you in shame. See, your God didn't care for you. You think you're a Christian? Look at what you did. You think you can come and ask for forgiveness after you've failed your king? You're nothing more than a hypocrite. Tainted and stained, and there is nothing strong enough to fix that. You're doomed. So you might as well just keep going. Why don't you just keep going? God's not going to forgive you. This is the way that the enemy wants to discourage us in the trouble of temptation. But what we must do is fight with this reality that the Lord does not put to shame anyone who trusts in him. So what does this do? What does this practically look like? It looks like in the moment of temptation, we cry out to the God who says that if we come to him, he won't cast us out. And so we say, Lord, I feel the pressure of this. I'm feeling the weight. I feel my flesh wanting to go this way, but I know in my heart I want to go this way. I want to honor you. I want to treasure you. But this is hard. He knows your frame. So often we want to hide the reality or act like God doesn't know our frame, but that is our hope. He knows how weak we are, so he invites us to run to him. That's exactly what worship and trust looks like, is that when we hear the barking dog of our, of our enemy barking against us, we run to the Father just like a child on the street who sees a dog that's scary and stretching them out. What does he do? He runs to his parents, runs to their arms for safety. This is what we must do in the midst of temptation. So friends, when you face your next temptation or doubt, whatever flavor it might look like, you can pray, God, keep me, and then entrust yourself to his care and obey what he says to do. This is what it looks like to pray, Lord, keep me from shame in the midst of temptation. What else do we learn? I want us to look at verses four and five. The second prayer we're going to see is, Lord, lead me. Look at verse four and five. It says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. In Hebrew poetry, there's a certain way that the Hebrews sought to express meaning. And what they would do is they would take two lines, and basically the second line would either complement, contradict, or further explain the first one. So that's how we read Hebrew poems, and that's typically the rhythm. 
And so I want us to do that together as we look at verses 4 and 5. With that knowledge, let's look and see. Put these two lines together and what's going on. It says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. So that's complimenting. It's the same kind of idea. And what we see there is David is asking, show me the way to go. Show me your way to go. But then notice, verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. So you have this word teach me in verse 4 and in verse 5, and then this added idea of truth. So friends, here's the idea of what David's getting at. David is wanting to obey God in the midst of his trouble. He's wanting to know what would honor God and what would please him. This is a man after God's own heart. This is what it looks like, is to desire to obey God even when it's hard and even when things are difficult. But where does he go? What does he ask the Lord to do? Teach him in the truth. So where do we go to learn in Christ's school? The good book, the scriptures, this is how God leads us. And why does God ask the Lord to lead him? Look at verse 5. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He simply wants to be like his father. This is the posture of a Christian. The Christian heart is, is just wants to be like his father. Not always. Often it's a war to get there, but this is the longing desire at the end of the day is that we would be like our Father, that we would desire what He desires and love what He loves simply because He is making us new. And so how does David model what it looks like to worship and trust here? Well, he asks God to lead him, and we can do the same. And we pick up the book and we read. That's the way. So what trouble are you going through right now? What suffering are you experiencing? Think of how this helps us during the trouble of suffering where hard circumstances have this tendency to weary us and to harden our heart unless they're weathered with the eyes of faith. Let's look to see what David tells us and teaches us how to pray. He says, make me to know your ways, lead me in your truth. Notice the sense of reliance here, right? Make me, teach me, lead me. There's no sense here of self-dependence. There's no like, hey, God, if you just change the circumstance, I'll take it from here. I I got this. I can figure it out. There's no sense if you just would help me understand what's going on in my soul, then I'll be able to kind of work out the rest. There's none of that. It's as if a little kid saying, I need you to teach me how to color because, well, you wouldn't do this because at this stage you can't talk. But, you know, the, the little baby needs someone to teach him. And that means they grab the crayon, they grab the hand, and they show him until they figure it out. The difference is, is we'll never figure it out. We constantly need to be led. And what is this posture? A posture that asks God to teach me and lead me. This is trust. And why does he want to do this to begin with? Again, he wants to be like his father. He wants to obey God. That's worship. So in your trouble of suffering, whatever it is, it might be the storm of anxiety. It might be the storm of grieving. It might be the storm of disappointment. I don't know what it is. Whatever the trouble you're going through of suffering, I want to encourage you. Pray. Ask the Lord. Use David's model here that says, Lord, teach me how to honor you. Teach me how to worship you in the midst of this trial. I may not know the way, but I know that you're willing to teach me. So will you please do that? And then take up and read. Read the word. Seek wisdom. Seek counsel. Read it in community. Talk to your friends and your family. Talk to an elder here at the church. This is how we do this. So we ask the Lord to teach us. And then we go to the means where we learn his truth, the scriptures. So we can pray, Lord, lead me in times of trouble. The third prayer, what else do we learn, is, Lord, remember me. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
It says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, here, David is in essence saying, Lord, be gracious to me, but not because of me. Be gracious to me based on you. Do you see that? He's specifically asking God to remember some things and to not remember other things. If you look at this text, this isn't David asking God to sweep it under the rug, but rather he's asking God to orient and deal with him based on God's own character rather than his own works. He says, remember your mercy, remember your steadfast love. That harkens us back to Exodus 34, where God reveals his heart to his people and shows that who he is at his heart is a God who is merciful and full of steadfast love. And he says, don't remember my sin, don't remember the sins of my youth, but rather according to your steadfast love, according to your character, remember me. So friends, this is what we can pray in moments of guilt, moments of shame, is Lord, remember me. Not based on me, but Lord, remember me based on you. And we as Christians, as new covenant people, can pray this with remarkable clarity because we get to say, Lord, remember me based on Jesus. Lord, remember me based on the finished work of Christ, not based on what I do or what I bring to the table, but rather solely on the mercy that you've shown me fully in the finished work of our King. That's how we can pray this. And I want us to think about how this reorients the North Texan heart in two ways. One, let's just compare it. This is what's unique about Christianity, right? Every other worldview or religion in the world says, God, deal with me based on me. Whether it's reincarnation, you have to be good enough to get to the next level. Or whether it's works, you have to do enough in order to make it into heaven. Or just being a good person, you have to do enough to be a good person. Well, that stinks for all of us who are bad. (laughs) But that's what the world says, is deal with me based on me. Christianity is the only thing that says, Lord, don't deal with me based on me. Deal with me based on you and your mercy. But again, as North Texans, we have a unique way of relying on our own success and independence And we struggle so often with this constant temptation to present ourselves beautiful, whether it's externally or internally. We want people to think that we're pretty good, whether it's our job or in our appearance or in our wealth or in our moral life. And all of this reveals the sickness of our heart that wants to be dealt with on our own resume. But friends, it's not that great. Maybe I'm just, if you looked at my mirror, maybe, all, maybe I'm the only one, but I know all of us would agree we're not that impressive, and David gets that, and that's what he's modeling for us. Lord, deal with me based on you, not on me. And so specifically, I want you to think about how this relates to us when our enemy seeks to accuse us, when accusations and condemnations start to flood your mind, when memories of past sin stand to condemn you, what can we pray? Well, we can pray, Lord, be merciful. Remember your work and remember me. This is exactly what Martin Luther did when the enemy sought to accuse him. And I'm going to share a large quote here that's rather graphic in the words of warfare, but I think it's helpful. Martin Luther said this, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, no says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, 
When you say I'm a sinner, you give me the armor and weapons against yourself. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulder all of my sin has been laid. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. That's what this looks like to pray, Lord, remember me. But not based on me, based on Christ. And friends, if you're here and you're a Christian, I want you to know that this prayer has been answered in full. Every single day, moment by moment, the Lord is dealing with you based on the work of Christ. When the enemy tries to tell you otherwise, pray, Lord, keep me. In the discouragement and despair over the remaining sin in your life, over the sin of your past or fear of the future, don't listen to the lies. Instead, fight. Fight by remembering your God's promises and ask him to take him at his word. He delights to do it, and that's what he wants from us, is to come and run to him and worship and trust and say, you promise you'll do this. Please do it. And he says, I will. That's the posture I'm wanting out of you, is full reliance and full worship. Let us fight with the shield of faith in Christ that can extinguish Satan's fiery arrows of deception and guilt. Let us fight the half-lies that only tell us of our sin but fail to remind us of our Savior. John Bunyan says, he that forgets his Savior is unmerciful to himself. So friends, let's be merciful to ourselves and fight to remember the truth of our God. Pray, Lord, remember me. Remember me based on you. And then look to the cross where we see his love forever proved. This is how we can pray when the enemy seeks to accuse us. What else can we learn? How else is David modeling for us how to pray? Let's look to 16 through 21 where we see the tension start to rise. It's like the, pre- the heat is getting turned on on David. And he's, he's now, he's been praying and meditating, praying and meditating, but now we're kind of seeing him with this all-out call saying, I just need you. I'm a mess. I feel like that's our modern version. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Here David is asking for help of various kinds. He's wanting the Lord to help him, and he's asking the Lord to turn to him and be gracious to him, to comfort him because he's experienced all this suffering. David is in trouble, and he's asking for help in very specific ways. Consider my enemies. Help me. I'm stressed. I'm distressed. And all of this affirms the reality that in the Christian life, we will go through a variety of hardships. It's normal for us to experience brokenness when we are broken people living in a broken world. But we have a faithful God, and that's what it looks like to worship and trust Jesus in the midst of our trouble, whatever it is. What does David model for us? He models that we should cry out to help. This is what worship and trust looks like. Why would David call out for help unless he believed God would do something? That's trust. And why would David call out to for help, and, and again, say things like, don't let me be put to shame, I take refuge in you, unless he wants to take refuge in God. That's worship. And so, friends, what it looks like to seek help in our time of need is believing that God actually wants to help us. That's what worship and trust looks like, because it means we're believing God and taking him at his word, which is worship, and then we're coming, we're asking for help, which is trust. This is the posture we're to have, and we can do that by saying, Lord, help me. We're called to cast our anxieties in the Lord and then let brothers and sisters in the church carry our burdens. This is practically what it looks like to live with a posture of, Lord, help me. And so what do you need help with today? What do you need help with? 
Do you feel alone and misunderstood? Call out to Jesus. Do you feel afflicted and wounded by the world or by your fears? Ask him to help you. Do you feel vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, fear of falling to sin or to shame? Ask him to help you, and he will. We see here that it's okay and appropriate to ask for the Lord to change our circumstances, but our primary desire should not be changed circumstances, but changed hearts. We see this in the fact that at the end of this, he says, forgive all my sins. Spurgeon would say, forgive all my sins is the cry of a soul that is more sick of sin than of pain and would sooner be forgiven than healed. This is what we want. Worship and trust in the midst of trouble looks like saying, Lord, please take this away, but even if you let me keep it, help me to love you more. Help me to love you through this. So whatever you're going through, I want you to know, friends, your life, if you are in Christ, is governed by the love of God. He uses all things for the good of his people. Whatever it is, that's what you're going through. He's, he's sending it your way so that you might learn to trust in him and rely on him completely. And that looks like worship and trust. But he's not a miser expecting you to do it on our own. Spurgeon also says, if, in essence, if Christ is willing to save you, won't he surely instruct you? So friends, we can pray, Lord, help me and trust that the Lord will. There's one more prayer we can learn, which is verse 22. It simply says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. And here we learn the prayer, Lord, redeem us. Here David models for us this reality that the first four prayers are all personal. Lord, here's what's going on. I need you to do something for me. Keep me, lead me, help me. But now we're learning to, to look at also this, this other one of redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. This is where we see, Lord, redeem us. Redeem us. This reminds us that in the midst of our trouble, no matter what it is personally, the love of God leads to love of God's people to where we should be concerned with the corporate troubles of the body. So simply put, if we would ask the Lord to help us with whatever we're going through, how can we not ask the Lord to help one another with whatever they're going through? Even in the midst of trouble, David reminds us to be focused on the troubles of others. So friends, our encouragement is just simply whenever you see a brother or sister suffering, might be from persistent sin or a battle over despair or a hard circumstance, maybe a divorce, maybe a hard uh, you know, situation at home, whatever it might be, we can pray, Lord, help them, redeem us from these troubles. And friends, here's what's good news. As you pray that, you can know that this prayer, prayer will one day be answered because look at this, redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his trouble. One day that will be true where all of Israel, all of the people of God will get to dwell with God where there will be a place where there is nothing accursed. In other words, there will be no more troubles when we're with Jesus. That day is coming. And with that in view, we ask the Lord to redeem us knowing that he's going to. It may not happen today, but a day is coming where this will happen in full. And that fuels us to prayer and worship and trust. So friends, we see these five prayers that we can draw out. But now I want us to look at how David meditates on God's word. And this, what we're going to see when we look at verse 8 in kind of this whole section of 8 through 18 is like a, a tornado where the vortex brings everything in. That is exactly what prayer does when it meditates on God's character. When we look at who God is, it draws us in to worship him. And so let's look and see, what do we see about our God that should lead us to worship and trust in times of trouble? Look with me in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. 
He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I apologize, 8 to 18. I'm at 8 to 15, so we'll stop there. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So friends, as David has modeled for us how to pray, he's also going to model to us how to meditate. And what he's doing is he's now looking at verse 8 in this reality. And, and look at how this all works together. 4 and 5 is a prayer. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And then 8 through 10, what does he do? He meditates on the fact that God will do that. He will instruct sinners in the way. But here's this beautiful redemptive reality I want us to see. What does David say about God? Look at verse 8. Two words, good and upright. This means that God is good and God is right. He is the standard of it. He, isn't just, he just isn't those things as if they're, they're things he adds on, but he is those things. Like he is the definition of them. He's the reality and the experience of them. And so often we tend to think that because God is good, he backs up from us when we are not. But look at the reality of what this says, and this is what I want us to really meditate on through the rest of our time. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore. This is like in Ephesians 2 and other texts where there's this word that kind of changes and hinges everything. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. This God is better than any God we could ever imagine. He's better than any God we could ever invent that says, deal with me based on me. This God is good and upright, and therefore he instructs sinners. He draws near to us to help us and to change us. And I just want us to meditate and think about how this is so different from how the world is trying to pervert what goodness and righteousness love looks like, right? The most loving thing we can do, says the world today, is to let people live their truth. And the most good thing we can do is ask people to not change, but the, the opposite is true. God in his goodness changes us. He doesn't leave us where he receives us. Instead, he instructs us in the way. He makes us new. The finished work of Christ is what saves us, but then the sanctifying work of the Spirit is what changes us. And this is good news for all of us today, is to meditate on the fact that because God is good and upright, it is His desire to draw near and begin changing us. And so I just want us to look at that reality, that friends here, God desires to disciple you. Is there anything in your life that's making you think that God is done? Maybe you're not a Christian, you just think that there's too much sin in your life that God can never redeem, or your failures as a parent or your failures as a husband, there's no way to ever make up for this. But I want you to see good and upright is the Lord. What does he do? He instructs sinners. Maybe you are a Christian, but you feel the same exact thing. I've sinned too much, I've ruined my marriage, I've messed up this, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing but a mess. Well, good news, good and upright, God is willing to instruct you. And if you're in Christ, he's already started that process. He won't give up. And so let's keep looking. How might we look and what might we find if we take Psalm 25 and the truth we just saw and pair it up with the New Testament gospel accounts of Jesus? What do you think we would find? We would find the God who is good and upright, Yahweh covered in flesh. And what is he doing? He teaches sinners. 
think through this. I'm going to go through and just kind of think through this comparison. You're welcome to look at verses 8 through 10, 8 through 15, as I just kind of share how we see Jesus doing these things, the good and upright God in the flesh actually living out this reality of what David says. This is God's character. It's like we see it on display. What does Jesus do? He teaches sinners in the way. He shows them his kingdom. He teaches them that the way of salvation was not through a sword, but through a sacrifice. He teaches them that the way of his kingdom, what they needed liberation from, was not from Rome and bondage to Rome, but rather liberation from sin. He's teaching them in the way. We see it all the way through. And as he goes throughout his teaching ministry, what does he do? He receives the humble and teaches them his way. He turns a woman out of well into a worshiper of God. He takes a tax collector and turns him into a true disciple. He turns fishermen into faithful men. And he takes anyone who's willing to humble himself. This is what our God does. Jesus turns to the lonely and afflicted and he heals them. He draws near to the leper and cares for his affliction. Everyone else would draw away from the needs of the crowd and draw away from the hurting and draw away from the outcast. But Jesus draws toward all of them. He cares for the troubled of body, mind, and emotions. And he has compassion on all those who are in trouble, and he draws near. He takes a group of humble, broken men, and he calls them his friends, and he teaches them his ways. And he, the God, the Son, chooses to call us brothers and sisters and then reveal the family plan to us of how our Father is going to redeem people from all nations just for the good of his glory and our joy to be a part of it. This is what Jesus does. He is the reason and the reality and the one through whom which we experience the benefits of the new covenant. Friends, when we stack Psalm 25 of 8 through 15 with the New Testament account of Jesus, what we find is Jesus is our teacher, he is our savior, he is our friend, and he is the God to whom which David is praying right now in this text. And we get to see this and say, Lord, help me, Jesus. We can pray this with remarkable clarity. This is who God is like. And so since this is all true, we find there's only one requirement to learn in Christ's school. And it's right there in verses 8 and 9. I'll invite you to look. What type of person does God instruct? Sinners. And what type of person does God teach? The humble. So today, if you're here, there's only one thing keeping you from being instructed. It's whether or not you will humble yourself before him. We are all sinners, so we got that box checked, but will we all be humble? The opposite of a humble sinner is a prideful sinner, an arrogant sinner, one who does not submit to God, but rather relies on his own ability, and this can look in two expressions, either trying to live life without him, completely disregarding, disobeying the law, or one who completely relies on themselves, thinking they have no need for the finished work of Christ. Instead, they rely on their own ability and their own work. This type of person is the one who will be ashamed. This type of person is the one who will be rejected. But to those who humble themselves, no matter how broken their past, no matter how broken their present, no matter how much sin continues to dwell in their own heart, it is those persons, anyone, Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, anyone who humbles themselves, Jesus will instruct you. I don't know if there's any better news we could hear today than the fact that if you are a humble sinner, God will not reject you. And so friends, what does this do for us? What does the posture of a humble sinner look like? Look at verse 15 with me. It says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Have you ever noticed what kids do when they're scared? Or something spooks them? What do they do? They look straight to their parents. Or what about if uh, you're with a friend at a meal, or you're with your spouse on a date, and something weird happens just socially, like around the room? What do they do? They look to you. <laughs> 
or if you're leading a small group or a business meeting or whatever it might be, and something off kind of happens, what happens? They look to you, or you look to them. You're thinking, you got this? (laughs) They're thinking, do you got this? In the same way, that's what humble trust looks like. They're looking to you because they believe you can do something. They're relying on you to do what you can do. In the same way, humble trust looks like saying, my eyes are on the Lord, not on myself, not on the world, but my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet of the net. And this is what the posture of a humble sinner looks like, as we look to the Lord alone for joy, salvation, security, rest, peace, all the benefits that flow out of our union with Christ. We look to him and we keep looking. So if you're here and you are not a Christian today, my question for you is who will you worship and trust? We see from looking at that paradigm of a humble sinner versus a prideful sinner, the fundamental reality is it all comes back to worship and trust. Will you worship and trust in yourself or will you worship and trust in Christ? To whom will you look with the eyes of your life, both today in your troubles and on the day of judgment? If so, I invite you to read God's word. Suspend your unbelief. I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. I just want to ask you and invite you. Just take him at his word. In the same way that I would ask you to take me and my word, if you're asking me a question about me, look at God's word and listen to what he says. He says he is good and upright, and therefore he instructs sinners, which means that if you are willing to humble yourself and receive him, he will gladly receive you. Jesus died and lived a perfect life so that he could pay for the wrath of God so that you and I, Mere sinners can be instructed and received in the family of God. I want you to know that today you can be received. All you have to do is ask God to receive you. And that posture of saying, Lord, I look to you in the finished work of Christ, would you receive me? That is worship and trust. So today, ask God to receive you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, in times of trouble, when you're broken with your own sinfulness, do you ever fear that God is done with you? Do you ever fear that you've gone too far or God must not want to redeem this area of my life or else he would have by now? If these thoughts ever come up, I want to ask you the same thing. Where are you looking in those moments for protection and safety? I invite us to do the same thing, to take God at his word and to see that he is good and upright and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. And so friends, the good news is again, you need to know, dear Christian, that God desires to disciple you and he will never let you go until the work is finished. You, walk, you drive around and see all these homes being built up. Every time you look at one, see that as a reflection of a builder who continues until the work is done. And God is a perfect builder. He will not finish. And he's more committed to your good than you are. So friends, where will you look in times of trouble? Who will you worship and trust? Keep your eyes on Jesus. As you go throughout this week, which will likely be full of burdens and troubles, my hope is that we spent time together looking at David's example of how to worship and how to trust and what to actually pray. And here's just a reminder of what you can pray as these troubles come up. Lord, keep me. Lord, lead me. Lord, remember me. Lord, help me. And Lord, redeem us. But we now have finished it all. We've, we've looked at what these prayers do, but we've also looked at the character of God that fuels these prayers. So we can pray these with this confidence that God is for you in Christ, and that he delights in discipling you because he is good and upright. And so, friends, as we go, I want to invite you to let these words of worship and trust ring in your ears. The Lord is good and upright. He will teach us in the way. So turn your eyes upon our King all throughout the day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and upright and that you instruct sinners. Thank you that for any of us who are here and do not know you, that you would, I, I, I ask, Lord, that you would just help them to not worship in themselves. 
I know that you know and I know and we know this is the default of our heart and I ask that you, by your sovereign grace, would, would renew hearts right now, that you would redeem them and, and, and lead them to look to Christ and what they've seen and what they've heard about the goodness of you and how you are so willing to instruct anyone who humbles themselves. And I pray that if there are any who are, do not know you, that they would humble themselves in faith. For those of you who are yours, Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust you as we go, that our eyes would be set on you all the day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.